So, you know, what's funny is I was like going to do our intro. Um, and then I listened back to our episode from the last couple of weeks where I said, we are the queer questioning and questionable quintuplet. We're not a quintuplet. Okay. Not- I, Paul, I do let it go. And I was like, we're a fucking quartet. <laughs> it is a quartet. I was going to say it was a quad quadruplet quadruplet quadruplet. Quartet. No, that would mean like quadruples are are like twins. I think we're like, like four four kids. Yeah, four babies. Is four a, babies is that came out at the same time. Quartets. We're a quartet. Like, I think we're a quartet because we're all speaking. We're talking together. It's like a thing. We should start every like episode with a harmonica, like. <laughs> Kirk just doing the harmonica to the let's unpack that uh, royalty free music. <laughs> um but cool everybody welcome back uh to let's unpack that um your bi-weekly podcast where this queer questioning and questionable quartet uh unpack topics at the top of our mind through the lens of anxiety depression politics genocide and everything in between Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We're sort of flip-flopping our weekly schedule where normally today we would be covering headlines. Um, And then later on in the week on our Thursday episode, we would be fully unpacking a topic. But um, because of what we believe to be at the time that we are recording this on Thursday night, a historic announcement is about to be coming from the Biden administration. Um, We wanted to do the unpacking first so that it felt a little bit more topical. So... Erica, Kirk, and Andrew, welcome back. It's good to have you guys. I know that you'll be short appearances on this episode, um, but today we're specifically talking about um, the Armenian genocide um, and the Armenian-Azerbaijan conflict. So at the time that we were recording this, President Biden, according to the New York Times, is expected to recognize the mass killing of Armenians by the Ottoman Empire during World War I as a genocide. This is according to two people familiar with the decision, and this breaks a long tradition of U.S. presidents referring refraining from using the term for fear of jeopardizing U.S. and Turkish relations. Um, This is an extremely strong departure from anything else that we've ever seen. Again, the Armenian genocide was over 100 years ago. If this holds true and Biden does make this announcement, though we can't all speak to it perfectly because we're not Armenian, we are people who really care about human rights violations, especially for those who kind of um, aren't seen. So we wanted to kind of jump on for about five minutes. Um, and then after that, um, we'll have a full unpacking um, with a friend of mine named Satanig, and she is talking specifically about the Armenian and Azerbaijan conflict, um, Azerbaijan being a country that is pretty much uh, funded by Turkey. So these things very much kind of play into one another, despite the fact that there's like a hundred year difference in between these conflicts, but I think that you'll really enjoy it. So um, I don't know, guys, you know, if you have kind of any thoughts on the hopeful fingers crossed Biden announcement, um, but, you know, wanted to sort of toss it over to, to one of you. Um, you know, I know we've we've talked about Turkey a little bit on this episode. We've hated on Turkey a lot on this episode, um, you know, and Donald Trump was sort of somebody who really was emboldened by uh, President Erdogan, who's the leader of Turkey. So um, again, I think it's it's something interesting. So I don't know, Andrew, like if, if you have kind of something you want to add, um, but uh, again, kind of a quick, quick uh, discussion before we jump into anything else. So yeah, this is actually something that I have a very minor connection to um, my grandparents lived in Turkey for a number of years in the nineties. My grandfather went over there for work 
And it's a country that I've always wanted to visit. Um, They brought back a lot of things that they bought there. All of the family members have Turkish rugs in their houses now because of that. Their house is all covered in little trinkets and things they've brought back. Um, They both learned how to speak Turkish. So it's an area of the world I've always wanted to go to. And, And at that point, they were very secular. And things have been moving in a a much more theocratic and authoritarian direction since the the early 2000s. Um, I don't know if Biden is saying this now because it's something he deeply cares about or if there's geopolitical advantage to him doing this. Um, I think our relationship with Turkey as a country has been souring over the last decade. Um, So now maybe they feel safe about it, but regardless, it's an important thing because it's, it's a huge human tragedy that has basically gone completely unacknowledged throughout world history, where at some point, almost every other human tragedy in the modern era has eventually been acknowledged. Yeah, I I think that you're right on, Um, you know, and a couple of things that you were saying sort of resonated with me, like there have been so many promises um, just from some of the stuff I've heard from friends over the years, but also just read recently, knowing that this announcement was hopefully coming um, that, you know, Armenian Americans and Armenians worldwide have been lobbying for world superpowers to acknowledge this as a genocide. But so many presidents have sort of promised that they were going to do this, but haven't because they're scared of Turkey for whatever reason, who they're funding, who's funding them. I know that there are some very obvious ties, I believe, that were exposed between Russia and Turkey. Um, You know, so there's there's always sort of this fear of pissing off you know, Turkey, when the reality is it was 100 years ago and 1.5 million people were killed. Um, That is three times the number of people that have died from COVID in the United States right now. That's a massive number of people killed, you know, due to a clear human rights violation where the Turkish government still says it was only 300,000 people. Like, so I think you, you hit on a couple things there that like just really show, I think, the failure of American leaders to, you know, stand up for human rights across the world um, in a diplomatic sense. You know, I think we've we've certainly thought we were standing up for human rights in, in a variety of ways. But I think this also maybe sets the stage to do something about the Uyghur population of, of Muslims who are in captivity in China. So I don't know, like maybe this has a dovetail impact on some other of the world's superpowers to do a little bit more. Um, Erica and Kirk, I'm not sure if, you know, you guys have anything to add either. I know, again, we preface the podcast by saying we're not experts in, you know, Armenia um, or the Armenian and genocide, but just kind of, you know, as people who care about human rights. Yeah. So I actually grew up with someone and like by grew up, I mean, I've known her since second grade and she's Armenian. Um, Her dad immigrated to the United States. And it's one of those things that I wouldn't know about it had I not known her. And like, Mm -hmm. I remember in elementary school, she was kind of calling out for this, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. And I'm sure it's, you know, based off of conversations that her family was having around her, but they're a very, it's a very small country. It's a beautiful country. She's posted pictures of it and it's absolutely stunning. So the fact that it's still at risk today is heartbreaking. Um, But it's, it's very, indicative of the fact that the Armenian community here, may it be small, it's very close-knit and they're very proud of their culture. So I think 
taking this step to saying, this is what happened to your people. And this was an attempt to eliminate your culture. We see that. And I think to me, I think people don't think about it because it wasn't reported. And realistically, it was in the Middle East and our education does not focus on the Middle East in a positive light or in a bright and colorful light. Um, And so it's it's one of those things where it, it was a Holocaust in the sense that the whole point was to actively seek out this community and eliminate them. Um, and so when people, the fact that people are denying it for what it was, is a little shocking when you consider, like, if someone said the Holocaust didn't happen, granted, people say that, but we automatically are like, they're crazy. But yeah, you're right. We would immediately say to those people, like, you're insane, you know, and versus like, when we, our response is Armenian genocide, what's that? Like, <laughs> and we need to be reacting that way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like, where is Armenia? is usually the True. question that yeah. comes up to or, be are honest. Are the Kardashians Armenian? Um, yeah, I was yeah. just going to say, and not even yeah. to make a joke, but I do think that that's the only, one of the only times I've seen it, like on their show, yeah. they've a few times gone back and they've done nice, yeah. from what I can tell, nice. Um, I think people, I don't know, I don't know where other, I mean, I don't want to speak for Armenians in America, how they feel about the Kardashians. I have no idea. And I know the Armenians have, and the Kardashians, Kardashians have shown some sort of light on it, I think, to an extent. I think you you said that nicely, Erica, is that it is, from what I've understood about the Armenian community, one of my best friends um, to this day is is Armenian, um, and, and Satsunig is her cousin. You know, are they blood-related cousins? I don't know, you know, but like they, she refers to every single person I know as her cousin. And that, I think, was just such a unique kind of thing about her culture. And you'll, you'll hear when Satanique talks, like she talks about the beauty of Armenia. She talks about, you know, the mountains. She talks about, you know, just like the hills and the valleys and how she feels connected to the land there, sort of being um, um, an indigenous person, having indigenous roots there, being born there. Um, so like, I think that there's like just some sort of beauty that you wouldn't see if you Googled Armenia in the news, like you might the first thing that might pop up is something about Turkey. And that's not like, they're not synonymous countries. Or if you look them up, it's like Azerbaijan. It's like, okay, there's a civil war that just ended there recently. Like, so it is very much like a country that people don't know a lot about. And I I hope that this interview today does kind of show them, but uh, Kirk, before we get to the interview, any kind of thoughts from, from your perspective or anything to add? I think there's been 30 other countries that have acknowledged it, right? I might be wrong. So we'll be, that's not a lot in the grand scheme of the world. Um, but I think everyone looks to the U.S. for everything. So I think it's important. That, that's one of the reasons I feel like it's just most important. It really, to me, doesn't mean anything. I don't know. It's, it's Biden's words don't have to always mean something. But I think in this specific, specific, specific situation, um, people look to the U.S., no matter which president it is that is saying it. So this will kind of speak for like the U.S. acknowledges, which I think is important. And I wonder what it will will do for other things that have happened and, and that are similar over the in history that no one is acknowledged yeah. um, or that the U.S. hasn't acknowledged. Yeah, agreed. And there will be a lot more uh, people talking about this who are way smarter than us. So, yeah. um, you know, at uh, when we post about this episode, you know, just go into the episode links. There are causes that you can donate to. There are petitions that you can sign. Um, there's a lot of different things to do. Um, and 
I think that was one of the things that um, a lot of us failed on last year when um, Armenians were calling out for recognition to support awareness of the civil war and and protect the Armenian people. Um, you know, and then a couple of years before when we were celebrating the 100 year anniversary, um, you know, people again sort of ignored it. A resolution passed, you know, uh, in the House and then it died in the Senate because of Mitch McConnell, you know. So um, it's just something I think that was going to be a really important story for you to hear and something that you should share with other people um, when you're you're talking in the future. There's obviously we can't go back and change the past, but we can certainly help some of the families that have been affected by this stuff, too. So um, take a listen for that, too. With that, we'll take a quick break. And then when we come back, my conversation with Satanique. Super excited to bring this episode to you today because I wanted to focus on specifically a story that matters and also a story I think that we have largely ignored. Um, For those of you who aren't aware, there is a massive conflict and has continued to be a massive conflict going on between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, I've posted about this a little bit on my story, but truthfully, my commitment to understanding this, um, doing my own research on it, and making sure that everybody else who listens to this podcast knows a little bit about this story and this conflict um, has been minimal. So I thought that it would be helpful um, to bring on a new friend of the pod, uh, Satanig, um, and have her talk a little bit about her story, her activism, her Instagram, and also just what's going on in Armenia right now. Um, I don't know if any of you have Armenian friends. Uh, I am luckily enough, I have had the opportunity to have very close Armenian friends for my whole life. And... um, The entire time I've known them, they have brought so much joy and laughter and richness, but also this like strong sense of culture um, that I cannot understand as the child of, um, you know, child of child of child of Irish immigrants. There's no richness in that culture from from what that I've been able to grasp. So I always love talking to Armenians and seeing an Armenian in pain uh, is something that I feel is a story that needs elevation. So um, Satanik, welcome so much to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Paul. And I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for using your platform to amplify this story and get it out to hopefully a few new ears. Um, And yeah, really excited to be here and uh, looking forward to unpacking the conflict (laughs) in, um, in Armenia and Azerbaijan. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm very grateful for this because I feel like um, we've all been trying to use our platforms in a little bit of a different way, um, specifically 2020 as it relates to the election year and things like Black Lives Matter. But with, I think, the kind of like onslaught of so much of that content, so many other stories have been left behind. Or you like, here you're supposed to care about something and you're sort of like, oh, I'll get to that. Um, you know, and, and my friend Stephanie challenged me to start following you and and kind of listen to your voice and see what was going on. Shout out, Stephanie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, So like one, yes, thank her for for that. But also two, thank you for for putting so much of your raw emotions out there. I would love to talk to you a little bit about you and your activism, your Instagram, just a little bit of background information on on you. Sure. Um, So hi, everyone. My name is Satinig. And I guess by being Armenian, you kind of are born into this activist role because... um, you know, as I'm sure a lot of marginalized voices or oppressed people will tell you, you kind of don't have a choice but to speak up for your own people and the plight of other oppressed peoples. Um, Really, honestly, ever since you can remember, um, for me personally, like 
I, I didn't grow up in the U.S. I grew up in Armenia. So it wasn't so much activism about raising awareness about what was going on in my country for me growing up, at least until I came here to go to college. Um, but then once I came here to get my bachelor's degree, um, I realized that there's definitely a need and um, that, you know, as, as an Armenian now a part of the diaspora, um, my role as an Armenian was to amplify whether it's Armenian culture, Armenian hospitality, Armenian food, um, and also, you know, of course, activism, a big way in which all Armenians pretty much have been activists ever since, you know, even my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation is trying to raise awareness about the Armenian genocide and and fight for for recognition of that. And so when you come, when you leave Armenia, it becomes kind of a part of something that you do as an Armenian. It's like, it, it, it feels almost like an obligation because we are a small people. And if we, if we don't, you know, if we don't broadcast our issues, if we don't fight for justice in all of um, the areas that affect us um, and other people, you know, that have similar issues to us, then, you know, who will, as we've seen you know, the mainstream media sometimes falls short. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things I, I found so interesting following you and, and reading just even the little bit that I was able to read is that piece of it, um, activism being woven into your DNA. Um, I know, mm -hmm. like, I think the house didn't recognize the Armenian genocide. Was that this year or last year? That um, was last year. Last yeah. year. Yeah. So yeah. I, it, it like, it must be, interesting to constantly feel like you're fighting against people who are erasing you. Um, yeah, it's not not the best feeling. It definitely wouldn't wouldn't recommend it to any other peoples, but you know, we're not we're not the only peoples that experience this and we're not the only peoples that experience it at the hands of of the Turkish regime either, you know, Kurds, Assyrians, um there's there's a lot of uh I guess mischief would be a nice way to put it um, yeah. happening on part of the Turkish regime. This is certainly not new. It's been, you know, their state kind of their MO for as long as anybody can remember. Um, so I think that it's important for us to have solidarity with one another and understand that um, we are all struggling against this oppressive regime uh, that affects us in, in varying ways and to varying degrees, but affects the welfare of our peoples. And so um, it's, like I said, it's an obligation to, to fight against that. Yeah. What was it like to, to grow up in Armenia? Um, you know, you've been here for how, how many years now? I haven't been here that long. I've actually been moving around quite a bit. Um, I just moved back to the States this June, uh, prior to that, I was living in your homeland. I was living in Ireland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it was a lovely experience. Um, growing up in Armenia was, uh, I don't get to take any credit for the decision to be raised there, but I am immensely grateful to my parents for deciding to raise us in Armenia at a time when, you know, it was definitely some funny looks in terms of, you know, there was a, there was mass emigration happening in the nineties after the Soviet Union fell apart. Um, and, you know, an, an economic blockade happened, the war started. Um, it was, it was, it was a fledgling democracy, um, that definitely had its fair share of issues. But, um, you know, my parents decided, my, my mother is actually from the U.S., but they decided to raise us in Armenia in the 90s. And 
um, for all of its ups and downs. I think that it has made me the person that I am today. It's ensured that my connection to Armenia is more than more than just you know an emotional homeland. It's it's practically in practice. It is my home. It's where I grew up. It's where you know I where I was formed uh, as a person. Um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for for anything. It was a wonderful experience growing up there, and super interesting to grow up in a post Soviet state. Like very 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 fascinating. Yeah, it's one of those things I cannot really fathom at all. <laughs> Just. Um, yeah, there's a lot of funny little anecdotes and stories that I could tell you about about growing up, um, like whether it was, you know, my first day of school and and trying to like adapt to the school system there. And because I had gone to kindergarten here and then when we went to school there, that was a whole that was a whole learning curve. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, just like, you know, learning to to navigate that scene, um, the scene in Armenia, making friends. Um, and then, I mean, we were very young, so it happened very seamlessly. Kids are like that. They have, they have huge adaptability, which is great. Um, but yeah, very, very funny, uh, to grow up in, in, in post-Soviet society. It was, it was a really remarkable experience and one that I think like, I I'm, I'm lucky to have had it because it's a moment in time that is, largely gone, I would say now, um, because most of, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart, what, 30 years ago. Um, so most of the countries that were fresh from the Soviet Union have developed and changed in, in varying degrees, uh, again, but, um, it is like this really unique bit of history that, uh, I'm glad I got to see, see the aftermath of and be a part of, you know, building, not building myself, obviously, because I was a kid, but, uh, experiencing that firsthand, uh, as a child. You're building it now too, you know? So I'm curious, yeah. <laughs> um, because this is one of our, our Christmas episodes, our holiday episodes, mm-hmm. I'd love for you to share just some of the, the Christmas traditions or holiday traditions in Armenia, or maybe even within the Armenian, uh, American community. Yeah. So, um, in Armenia, uh, especially during the Soviet Union. So first of all, we don't celebrate Christmas on uh, December 25th. We celebrate it on January 6th. Got it. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a it's a different date for our Christmas. I guess if you calculate it, it would be the 12th day of Christmas. Um, if you're going by the, that song or the, the that calendar. Um, so first we celebrate New Year's and then we celebrate Christmas on um, January 6th. And um, I think in, in the Soviet Union, New Year's was almost a bigger deal kind of than Christmas. For example, um, you didn't get presents on Christmas Day. You got them on New Year's Day. Huh. Um, and people in Armenia just love New Year's as a, as a holiday. It's like they love the fresh start. They love um, they have like a word that means New Year's. It's not like two separate words. It's just one word that means New Year's. Um and it's really just like an opportunity for everybody to take a really long and restful break. Um, in Armenia, it's like a public holiday from usually January or December 30th or 31st, all the way up until like January 8th or 9th. And it's like everything shuts down. And it's this rotation of you celebrate it, you're with your immediate family um, at the stroke of midnight and then you, you, you all have your toasts and you, you, 
you eat your food and then it starts where you, you just start, you go to your neighbor's houses, you go to your relatives' houses and everybody just goes all around to congratulate each other for New Year's uh, and just like really celebrate kind of fresh beginnings. Um, and then obviously Armenian Christmas comes around and it's a very traditional, like very, I would say simple Um just dinner with your family, Christmas day, we usually go to church. Um, you know, Christianity is a big thing for us. Um, and yeah, so no crazy traditions like, uh, I don't know, gingerbread baking or gingerbread house making or, um, any of that stuff to my knowledge, or at least that I grew up with. Um, but we definitely love the holiday season and we love, uh, celebrating new year's and Christmas. Unfortunately this year it's not going to be the same. Um, they've canceled some of the Christmas celebration, or the Christmas New Year's like decorations in Yerevan because you know the country's in a state of mourning. We lost a lot of we lost a lot of soldiers in the war. A lot of people are displaced, so um, it's a it's a solemn time this year. Um, but very hopeful that 2021 will bring better times than. 2020 has it's been a it's been a tough year all around with covid and then globally covid black lives matter um and then in armenia of course the war and the the tragic ending to the war so yeah i would i'd love to talk about that a little bit um because i would imagine it's not only a topic of conversation for kind of you every day now and going through your your brain uh like every day and every moment especially when you talk to your family and, and friends and other people in the armenian community but um if it's possible you know i'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the war you know kind of what happened um and then because like in, in my mind and this is fully my privilege talking like i like it, I felt like it was starting and then it was gone and then it was out. And then I was like, Oh, I heard about it for a day when there was a protest in LA and then yeah. it sort of moved along. Um, and, and, you know, shame on me for not doing a little bit more digging. Um, but I would imagine that most of the people listening are probably in the same camp as I am. I, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about kind of what, what's going on. And I know there's very much a history to it as well. So if I miss anything like that, I'll, I'll make sure to edit that back in. No, right. Um, and, and just to kind of, just to also clarify, like, don't, you know, don't feel too bad because it is a super complicated issue. Um, and it is, it is, it is fairly complex to understand or not, not complex to understand, but the history is like fairly nuanced. Um, so maybe what would be best is if I gave a very quick summary on the history. The conflict between um, Armenia and Azerbaijan was over the Nagorno-Karabakh region, which uh, Armenians refer to by its historic name, which is Artsakh. Um, and it is a mountainous enclave that was given to Soviet Azerbaijan um, in the 1920s by Stalin, um, as you know, people say that it was whether his gerrymandering hopes or his hopes to appeal to Turkey to join the Soviet Union. Um, in any case, there was a lot of arbitrary redrawing of borders that happened in the Soviet Union that caused a lot of ethnic strife um, down the line. Um, because, you know, after a certain while, uh, the, the population of the mountainous enclave, Artsakh, remained primarily Armenian. Um, consistently over 80% Armenian. I think that's a number that I'd be, that I would be. And by the way, uh, for any of the listeners, I am by no means authorized by any official body to comment <laughs> on this. This is just 
me speaking as a proud Armenian uh, on a topic that I that I know about. So the population remained over 80% Armenian. And towards the end of the 80s, um, they they tried to exercise their right to self-determination, which was constitutionally permissible, according to the Soviet Union, to reunify with Soviet Armenia. And that was partially because, you know, they just they wanted to be united with their own people and be able to um, to be able to be a part of Soviet Armenia as a whole. And then um, also when they made these calls for reunification with Soviet Armenia, uh, Soviet Azerbaijan launched a number of pogroms, which is massacres against um, the Armenian population in Sumgait, which is a city in Azerbaijan, in Kirovabad, in Baku. Um, and these were all kind of retaliations for the Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh calling for unification with Armenia. But, you know, they were determined. They did not want to leave their lands. They, we, we are indigenous to those lands. It's proven by the fact that there's there are numerous artifacts and um, and churches and structures that indicate that we have been there for centuries and centuries. And so we didn't want to leave that land. We just wanted to unify with Armenia. Um, and those calls fell on deaf ears. And so it devolved into a full-scale war in the 90s. Um, and in the 90s, uh, the Armenians were victorious. We did, we were able to secure Nagorno-Karabakh and some surrounding regions uh, under Armenian control, which guaranteed the security and safety of the Armenian population there, um, which definitely could not have been secured uh, or, or it could not have been guaranteed were they to remain within um, now the new Azerbaijani state. I'll pause there if you have any questions since that's the, the history. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 I, I do. Um, but, but thank you. That was a really good description. I, you know, to me, when you talk about kind of that, like, it, it, it sounds like a form of like protecting your own people, you know, mm -hmm. and if they had been murdering other Armenians in other Azerbaijani cities, to yeah. me, that that is, it seems like a, like, it, it's so, it's hard for me to put myself in that moment because I, I don't, I'm not, I don't identify with any war of land in that way, like in the United States, like that's oh, completely. It's just, yeah. you know, it's so, it's so different, but like that rich tradition that protecting your own people, especially after something as, you know, horrific as the, the genocide that creates such a, a tight culture and group of people. Like to me, yeah. it seems extremely important. Like I, I'm trying to understand and empathize with that, but I don't know you if know, and it trivi trivializes it, but. Not at all. And honestly, I, it's, it's funny that you, you raise that because it, in my own conversations, trying to, trying to tell my own non-Armenian friends about it, trying to explain it, um, you realize that it's it's really something that's that's it's it's very tough to relate to because unless you have this this kind of collective mindset of an indigenous people that are so tied to their land in so many ways, like you know, one of my Instagram posts, I I spoke about. Uh, I don't know if you saw this one or not, but I spoke about how as indigenous people we feel like we belong to the land as much as we feel that the land belongs to us. Like it's a very symbiotic relationship. So it, it is hard to convey those emotions and to and to transfer the significance of those feelings if you if you don't have that experience and. Uh, to be honest, I'm envious, <laughs> right. envious in some ways, because it is, you know, when something like this happens, the pain is, is indescribable. But 
obviously also I wouldn't trade, you know, the love that I have for, for my people and my country for, and not to say that, you know, Americans don't, uh, of course, or any peoples don't, but when you're constantly under threat, like you, you, you just realize like how precious it is. And that's like a very real and very active conscious thing that you have to think about. And also like, as of this year, I've learned that I can never take peace for granted, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of a shocking thing because like, you don't really think about like peace in your, you don't think about the security of like walking down the street or, but you know, it made me think about that in a very real way that like maybe my great grandparents, you know, had that trauma, but my generation didn't. And now I'm like, okay, well, I'll never take this for granted again. So yeah, that that's like, that defines 2020, I think, for a lot of people. Just that, oh that God, simple yeah. mindset of like, oh, it's like you forget what it's like when you're not sick or you're not worried about everybody else being sick. It's it's safety and security. Um, I I yeah, I, I want to jump back into the conflict because it, like something you said too that I also saw on your Instagram was around like that piece of like belonging to the land was like you shared a post on like um your connectivity with like the mountains, even you know, in Armenia. Yeah. Like even just that is like such a sign for you of what Armenia is and was, you know, that those they would represent that part of you or or seeing a mountain would represent that feeling in you, I guess. Yeah, it does. Because, um, you know, we have a saying in Armenian, we say, which means we are our mountains. Um, And I think that that one phrase kind of just embodies this whole attitude of like, our mountains are us, we are our mountains. And like, if you try to remove us from our mountains, like that's that it feels like a disruption of nature. Um, And then there were so many war crimes being committed. But like the one that I can talk about now is that white phosphorus was used um, on the forests of Nagorno-Karabakh, which like, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with white phosphorus, but it's not a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's like that's not like phosphoric acid, is it? It's similar to a chemical. I'm neither a chemist nor a war crime expert, but from <laughs> what I understand, um, you know, it's it's incredibly damaging. Uh, if it, you know, if it if it falls on soldiers, if it falls on the land, it makes the land like almost uninhabitable, I believe. Um, and they were burning our they were burning the forests of Nagorno Karabakh with it, um, and you know, a lot of again, not to, not to get gruesome, but a lot of images are emerging of soldiers that were, um, that sustained white phosphorus wounds. And so, but to see like the videos that we saw of white phosphorus being rained down on our forests was like, you know, that almost hurt as much as seeing one of our people being wounded, because like, we really do feel that it feels like if, if our mountains are being harmed, if our forests are being harmed, like we're so connected to the land and we feel so deeply with it that, um, it was it was incredibly painful to see that incredibly painful to know that, you know, anybody would do that to to land, especially if they're arguing that it's theirs, which it's not. Right. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, if it's yours then why are you burning it? We would never do that to summarize like how we feel just like we are our mountains and it's really hard. Like I've been trying to journal about it. I've been, I've been trying to understand like on a deeper level, like this connection of indigenous peoples to the lands for, for so long. Um, And you can talk about it for hours and still not really convey the emotion uh, fully or accurately because um, it's it's incredibly, incredibly deep and it carries centuries of collective memory, of collective, you know, national identity of Armenians. Um, and every Armenian feels it like 
you know, even if you've never been to Armenia, there's so many stories of like people touching down in Armenia for the first time in their life because, you know, going to the Soviet Union was so hard. Are you going to say something? Yeah, no, I have heard that story before from friends who have been there. Yeah. Yeah. People, people like start crying. Um, It's like it, 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 you just, you feel a different energy. Like you just, you, you feel a different energy when you're, when you're there, especially if you, if you come from, if you come from a line of people that are indigenous to that land. Um, and it doesn't go away just because like your parents were born in another place or you were born in another place. Like, I think that's what indigeneity carries with it is this memory, regardless of whether you were born somewhere else. Like once you're home, you know, you're home. Yeah, that's really beautiful. It also reminds me, um, I've spent a lot of time in the Dominican Republic and the the people in the Dominican Republic are um, very much uh, connected with their land, with their culture, with their community. Mm. They're the place where when you land, everybody claps, cries and sings, you know, and and that's my only kind of like connection to that is I've always people like who claps on airplanes and I'm like, Dominicans clap on airplanes because they are so thrilled to be home. It's it's a little bit of a different yeah. connection than what you're describing, but that that piece of like I'm here and I'm part of this and I'm back where yeah. I belong, whether mm-hmm. they've been there or not. Yeah, I, yeah. I get that. Armenians kind of do the clapping. Yeah. Armenians do the clapping thing yeah. too. And honestly, like I've seen a lot of memes online about clapping when a plane lands and like people troll it for sure. They're like, oh, really? Like these people are clapping. I love it. I think it's adorable. I yeah. think it's so cute. It's like a celebration. This, this like hellish journey was not always hellish, but like who likes being on a plane for hours and hours? Not me. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, I just want to get where I'm going. So I think it's adorable. I think it's a really, really cute thing. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think so too. <laughs> yeah. So just to wrap up on the, on the conflict bit, maybe I can just talk about like this most recent conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask kind of, when did it start to escalate again? Yeah. Yeah, so this year has been a little bit tough because in July, we saw skirmishes on the border between Azerbaijan and Armenia proper uh, in the Tavush region. Um, And that was like just over two weeks of not intense fighting, I would say, like not as intense as as this most recent conflict was. But certainly, you know, we all felt alarmed um, by this. And then before this, before that, we had the four day war in 2016, which was, um, in April of 2016. And we thought that was the worst. Um, and that was the worst fighting since the war had ended in 1994. Um, and so then when the, when the skirmish had happened in July, it was concerning, but it was concerning, not just because of, uh, the skirmishes in Armenia itself, but we also saw this wave of hate crimes and hate speech against Armenians in ways that we hadn't seen before, like Armenian businesses were being attacked, um, an Armenian church in San Francisco. Uh, they, they think it was, it was burnt. Um, and they, they, they called it arson. Um, and, you know, Armenian homes in San Francisco were being marked with crosses and, and writing arm, like just hate crimes that you, you look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, is this, Am I suddenly in the 40s? Like, what is happening here? And then you see, like, in Europe, there's there's a a terrorist organization. It's called the Grey Wolves. And they're they're a Turkish fascist organization marching through the streets with throwing up their Grey Wolves symbol, um, looking for Armenians um, and threatening them. It's like, it's very wild to see that as an Armenian person, especially as an Armenian not living in Armenia. um, Yeah. 
you feel unsafe, you feel you feel worried about all of your friends and family. And then we thought that things had gotten better. We thought that it calmed down. And then all of a sudden on September 27th, we woke up to a war and the war was incredibly ugly and just like incredibly harrowing in every way, whether it was the hate that we were getting online um, as individuals. I myself have gotten a lot of it. I know my friends have gotten a lot of it um, to seeing war crimes that Azerbaijan is committing and filming and posting online. And then, yeah, the war ended on on November 9th and not favorably uh, for us. No Armenian is happy with how it ended. We, I would say that there is general relief that the fighting has stopped, but no Armenian feels like, oh, thank God, like we can move forward now. Like there's a deep sense of loss. We lost a lot of, we lost a lot of land. We lost... Um, at least 3,000 and a majority of them young men um, who had yet to live their lives, yet to, you know, yet to start families. A lot of people lost limbs and, you know, thousands of tens of thousands of people displaced and it's winter. And so it's a, it's a massive humanitarian crisis. Um, And so, you know, the whole, the, the global Armenian community is rallied to, to do what we can to support with um, at least the humanitarian portion of it, given that the politics can feel out of our hands sometimes. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, when you talk about the young men, are you talking about soldiers specifically? Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I want to put that in context for our American listeners that, you know, over the 20 years that we've been at war in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've lost 4,400 soldiers, you know, stretched out over that amount of time. I mean, just conflict wise, it's not to compare ever say, you know, like everybody has different reactions to things, of course, but to lose that much life that fast. I mean, we lost 3000 people on 9-11, you know, and that's like, that's an event that we talk about for years and years and years. And I, I just try to contextualize that a little bit because I think sometimes people hear a number and it's like, well, I don't know. And it's like, no, like, 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 it is if you, hugely impactful, especially for a smaller population compared exactly. compared to the United States. Yeah, and thank you so much for for illustrating that point. Um, it is also when you put it in the context of how small the population is of, in Armenia. Like for context, um, even if you say like we're a, we're a population of just under three million, so percentage wise, it feels much larger. Um, but I think if you take it back a step and you and you try to present it from a personal, like I myself and most people that I know in the Armenian community are at most one step removed from somebody who has lost a loved one or somebody who has died. Yeah. And so it's just crazy because like while the war was happening, I was checking in on my friends, my family there and like constantly, you know, everybody was going to funerals. That I think illustrates the magnitude of this is that it's not something that like you can isolate or you can you can kind of turn a blind eye to because it affects everybody around you. So it, it really is like it, you know, this is another thing that I wrote is that my like American friends or my non-Armenian friends kept asking me, like, do you know anybody that's fighting? Do you know anybody who's on the front lines? And honestly, like it didn't really matter if I did or I didn't because we're such a small country. Um, our population is, as I said, just under 3 million. And so it really did feel like every single person that was fighting. Um, first of all, they're fighting to defend my country, my home, my family, my friends, me. Um, 
their home, you know, and we share all of that. Like they're, if they're defending their home, it's also my home, their country. It's also my country. Um, but also like, it doesn't matter if I, it didn't, it doesn't matter if any of us knew them individually, because, um, just like the, and the, and the downstream effects of that is like, you know, you don't know who was an only son, let's say. So like the line of that family may have ended, um, Mm -hmm. or you don't know who was the sole breadwinner for a family of who knows how many people. And like, so just like, I mean, war is like the most, the ugliest thing in how it affects people because, uh, war and natural disasters, obviously, of course, but you know, cause even those who survived, I mean, thank God that they survived, but a lot of them have lost their limbs, have lost their eyesight. So it's really like, you have to figure out how to, how to provide support to these people to, you know, if, if you, if you were in a job that required mobility and required use of your arms or use of your limbs, what is needed to get that person to a point where they are able to provide for themselves and for their family again. So yeah, it was just war is terrible. Uh, it's, it's an absolute disaster and it makes it worse that it was such an unfair war because I don't know if you saw any of this, but like it's been documented and proven. So I do feel comfortable referring to this, but Turkey was importing, you know, jihadi mercenaries to fight for Azerbaijan. They were saying that they would, I don't know how gruesome I want to get, but no, like I, very saw, nasty, I, I was going to say, nasty I saw thing. a couple of your posts around, you know, sending soldiers bodies back and, and things like that too. Like, yeah, sending soldiers' bodies back completely disfigured or, um, you know, the, the, the amount of awful videos that have been circulating on, on places like Telegram and even Twitter have been really appalling. War is ugly enough as it is, but when it's fought so dirty, it's hard not to just feel completely enraged um, and, and, and just furious and like want to fight with everything you have but also feeling powerless unless you can like, you know, go on the front lines yourself um, to, to write the injustices. Uh, but obviously like, you know, I, I'm not military trained. Um, I probably should be, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> so there's only, there's only so much you can do, but, you know, raising awareness, especially to the injustice of how unequal it was, how much assistance Azerbaijan got their misinformation campaign, it's just, it was it, the misinformation campaign as a whole. Like I could, I could talk for hours about that alone. It just was really, really ugly. Yeah. And, and, and that's like, you know, I, again, my understanding of a lot of international conflicts feels very baseline or feels very like headline driven even. And even with that limited understanding, I know like President Erdogan, you know, in, in Turkey is absolutely disgusting and a complete tyrant. And, um, you know, that, guy. yeah, that and that's like as somebody who doesn't know a ton about international politics or international relations or these kind of longstanding conflicts and, and relationships when we're wrapped up in an election, but there's still things going on with mm. you know, superpowers in the world and getting involved in international conflicts that escalate to full scale war that could easily involve, you know, the United States. I think it's important for our primarily American audience to at least be aware of it somewhat. So I'm curious yeah. about your thoughts on why it's important for Americans to care about this conflict, disregarding the entire humanitarian crisis, of course, but also just the U.S. involvement in the the region. I remember when the conflict was first starting in September and October, there were a lot of calls for like Trump could easily be a 
peacekeeper here or be get involved here or defend something here. And, and I don't say this to necessarily critique Trump. Truthfully, I don't know how a Democratic um, candidate would would react either. But, um, yeah. you know, I'm just curious of what your thoughts were on U.S. involvement or, or the ability to deescalate. You know, to your point, we don't know how a Democratic president would have reacted either. And given some actions that Democratic presidents have taken in the past, especially in the region, whether it's drone warfare or whatever it might be, I'm hesitant to be too hopeful on that front. But I would say that at least there wouldn't have been the vacuum of leadership that I think President Trump's presidency kind of gave way to like he definitely took a back seat um, on the international arena and chose to not get involved as much it was very much like an America first uh, approach to and and I think that you know certain leaders in the world took advantage of that but it's important to remember that nothing happens in a vacuum um, and you know for a very long time but certainly over the last few years Turkey has been permitted to put it nicely stir the pot mm-hmm. <laughs> in the region um, there's been a lot of uh, just causing chaos pretty much everywhere they go. He's involved in proxy wars in, you know, Libya, uh, Syria, of course. I mean, you know, we've seen what Turkish involvement in Syria has done there. Um, constant provocations and instigations with Greece. I think that the reason that he feels emboldened, in my view, uh, again, I'm not not a professional at this, but just as somebody who consumes the news, who follows it actively, it makes sense that if you continue to allow somebody's bad behavior to go unchecked, they will continue to behave with impunity. So, you know, as the Turkish state continues doing whatever they want globally, it's hard to see like what will force them to stop unless a global power comes in and says, you know, you, you've got to stop this. Otherwise, whether it's sanctions or other methods of pressure, um, it's just it, it, it's been allowed to go unchecked. And I think that a big part of that has been this like absence of American leadership in the world. But again, to go back to it, I don't have too much faith that a democratic president would have been much better. Um, You know, there's also this hesitation on the American public doesn't want to, you know, they wouldn't have gotten militarily involved, of course, like that would be completely out of the question. And there's no American wants to see boots on the ground anywhere, um, unless you're like a crazy warmonger. Um, But the U.S. is positioned to put pressure in other ways and like not seeing that um, you see how they, you know, they just, run wild with whatever chaos they want to cause. And I think that it's worrisome because for us, it's like, we've been watching this. And I was, I was speaking earlier about the hate crimes and like the marching through Europe and like all of this stuff. And when you look at it, you're like, um, let me just go back in history and check really quickly, like how fascism started, like how did the Nazis gain power? Um, and there are some similarities You know, a big thing that I've been saying is that when you see atrocities like this happening in the world, if you're the first to call it out or the first to make crazy noise about it, often people will say, oh, you know, they're crazy or like they're being so dramatic or these crazy Armenians again with their persecution narrative. And it's like, um, no, if you look at the evidence, the rhetoric is incredibly concerning. The actions are incredibly concerning. The meddling in so many different countries is very concerning. And it's like, what is his end game? And ultimately, like if that devolves into a bigger regional war, whether it's, you know, the Turkey-Russia dynamic or whether it's 
President Erdogan's pan-Turkic ambitions, how that plays out still remains to be seen. But those types of events do not happen in a vacuum. And eventually, they impact the globe. It's hard being on the receiving end of it early on, because you're screaming about it. And you don't want to be the boy who or not the boy who cries wolf. I don't think that's the right comparison. But you don't want to be the first person to like raise a red flag about it. Because everybody's going to say, oh, you know, chill out. It's not that it's bad. Not that bad. Yeah. We can't get into another war. We have to, you know, stay. Yeah, Ex- exactly. And I mean, I hope we're wrong. I hope that I hope that it doesn't, you know, devolve into that for the world's sake. You know, we'll see what happens. I think uh, in any case in the region, um, Turkey has played a, a terrible role over the last few years. And how that progresses remains to be seen. I'm not hopeful that he will kind of, you know, hold his horses on anything. Uh, just because, again, he's gone unpunished for so long. So what's stopping him? Yeah. And I think, you know, whether it's a, a, a president who's sympathetic towards Russia, so doesn't want to get involved in things where Russia has a clear, obvious play or, or interest, or whether it's a, a president like our president right now, if he has to feel he can only really be focused on COVID, what does that mean when other international conflicts happen? I mean, there's a lot of people talking about Iran right now, obviously, too. But there's there, there's yeah. so many things that I think you, you I think you said it right, like the, the vacuum of American leadership internationally, right? Like, because that's... Yeah. The ability to apply pressure when the United States has so much power and controls so much trade and, you know, like there's there's just so much that people can do in terms of coming to the table and talking about a conflict resolution. But I'm curious because you've said a, a lot of things, you know, that I, I haven't really heard. You've shared so much detail and I'm so thankful for that. Um, it, you know, one thing I have noticed is that um, you and other Armenian friends, and you mentioned it yourself, like the lack of media coverage, lack of international support, Armenians feeling very much on an island. Um, you know, what can we do now? Like, what are the things that people can do now? Is it is it listening or is it, you know, donating? I know you've done a couple things even on, on your own Instagram too, where you've been raising money, but like, what are the things people can do to get involved or, or stay involved? So one of the things is first, I think um, staying informed on all of these things is, is obviously key. Um, and it's really important that we continue to try to get the message out. Um, and so I know that we are the Instagram, social media, <laughs> Twitter generation. So I can send you a list afterwards um, and, yeah, yeah. and recommend some people that could be followed. But another thing is to put pressure on your Congress people. There is a uh, resolution. I think it's a resolution. I'm not sure if it's a bill, but um, you can check with our advocacy uh, groups uh, after the call to send $100 million in humanitarian aid to Armenia. Um, and this is a time in which like, it, it is dire to get that aid. There's, again, you know, some, have, some are saying up to 100,000 people displaced. You know, winters are pretty brutal in um, Armenia. So it's really important that we try to get that aid to Armenia if possible. Um, So if people have the time to alert their representatives that they are in support of sending that aid to Armenia um, and also to hold Turkey accountable for their war crimes, for advocacy, you can follow the Armenian Assembly on Instagram or Twitter um, and then also the ANCA. So I can send you the Instagram accounts for both of those. They will share kind of action items that you know, since this whole war started, we've been trying to get Turkey sanctioned. We've been trying to get senators to co-sponsor resolutions for 
a variety of things, whether it's calling out them out for war crimes or recognition of the independence of Artsakh, which is, I believe, the only way to resolve this conflict once and for all. I should have probably said that during the conflict part, huh? That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to close with a final question about it too, you know, so just okay, to great. So we yeah. can, we can, we can follow up on that. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so those are, those are a couple of great ones and then follow Armenian news sources because we've always known that the Turkish lobby is powerful. The Azerbaijani lobby is powerful, but in the war, it really became clear how far the tentacles of, you know, their money reaches, um, whether it's in PR firms or in DC so it's really uh, important to kind of combat that with the Armenian voices because they are oftentimes the ones that are presenting an accurate narrative of what's happening on the ground. And, and usually like when we're, when we're calling them out for war crimes, this stuff is backed up in like very, very harrowing um, and upsetting videos and imagery. And so, you know, if you don't, if you don't want to see that stuff for yourself, you can just tr- take the news sources word for it. Um, and so I can send you a list of good accounts for um, hopefully your followers to take an interest in and follow. So how can they help in terms of the media? And then were you asking how can they help otherwise as well? Yeah. And then uh, for donations as well. Yeah. 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 So for donations, there's a number of organizations that are doing really amazing work on the ground. And I can I can send you a list just to name a few off the top of my head. There's a number that have you know, sprung up in Armenia independently uh, as a result of the war. They are very active on Instagram. It's really um, easy to follow them and see their their work through Instagram. But then some of the more no, well-known, I guess, organizations um, are, you know, the Children of Armenia Fund, the Armenian Relief Society, Code Three Angels, Armenian Wounded Heroes Fund. I can send you a full comprehensive list to point people to in case they want to make a monetary donation to help soldiers recover or helping the families of wounded soldiers or, you know, helping displaced people kind of get back on their feet as they as they have to, you know, start their lives again uh, in a new place with none of their belongings, none of their clothes. (laughs) So very sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly sad. And that's where I put myself emotionally when processing those things. It's like what happens at the Southern border in the United States, very different context, you know, not necessarily always a a war or something like that, but just a bunch of people fleeing from lack of safety, being displaced by a conflict that they had no part in, in starting. And we're just, you know, good people trying to live their own life. And that is incredibly upsetting. Like, what is your hope or what do you see as, as practicality for um, Artsakh now? You know, now that the, the conflict is not necessarily resolved, but the, the war is, is at a ceasefire. Yeah. yeah. Um, my hope for Artsakh is the hope of all Armenians is that the Armenian population of Artsakh get to exercise their self-determination and have that self-determination recognized. And they have been calling for independence um, since, you know, since the early nineties. And they are, I think within their right to call for independence. So I think recognition of the independence of Artsakh uh, as its own Republic is, is my hope for Artsakh, but I guess on a more practical level, I would hope that the solution to this conflict come in a way that 
is diplomatic um, and driven by diplomacy rather than war, because I don't want to see more of our people dying. And I don't want to see more of more Azerbaijanis dying either. Um, I mean, I know that they sent a lot of mercenaries, but I'm sure that there are families that lost their own children or their husbands and you know, war is not, war is an ugly business for anybody that's involved. And I wish that it never got to this point. There were a lot of mistakes that led it to this point, And I'm not going to analyze the, the politics of it now. But my hope is that the people can continue to live on their land, can can exercise their self-determination and can live there peacefully and, and securely and prosper um, on the land that they've inhabited for the last 3,000 years, at right. least. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, so... I was going to say, just, thank you. Just want them to thrive. <laughs> yeah, seriously, you want them to thrive. Thank you so much for joining us, Ataniga. It was so great to hear your perspective um, to share this story that mattered. I, I think that this is like one of those things that I think as American activists or people who care, it's like we look back, like you said, and we're like damn, we like missed the opportunity to write and call to our senators. It's good to know there's still more stuff to do now because we were consumed with an election that was obviously very important to us. But we do have to, as people who are trying to commit themselves to activism, commit themselves to learning, you know, channel some of that anxiety into doing something really good and impactful, like, if we can't kind of just process little, even little bits of information or process little bits of activism, like we're failing in, in that sense. So um, I'm grateful that there is still more that we can do. Um, and, and I hope that we can continue to help uh, at least for a little while. And, and if not uh, help financially, but just help, like you said, the, there's websites out there that easily allow us to write letters to our senators and to put some pressure on. And we have the ability in our communities to do that, you know, for just your household, you know, you and your husband and maybe your teenage kid, or maybe you and a neighbor or you and a couple friends be like, Hey, just do you guys mind writing this letter? Just get people together on a virtual zoom or something and do it like build this into kind of like what you do, you know? So it doesn't feel like what I feel is this kind of like, ah, like, you know, like I'm, I'm grateful that we can talk about it, but I also, you know, wish, wish during the moment that I could be like, I can process two things at once. I'm so grateful that you joined and I hope that our, our listeners enjoyed hearing your story. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I really appreciated it. And again, want to thank you for using your platform to inform your listeners on topics that may feel far away, but um, definitely have uh, bigger ramifications. And yes, just to emphasize your point, there is still work to do. If any of your listeners do take it upon themselves to call their senators or to donate, um, that would be tremendously helpful for the Armenian community and very, very much appreciated. And I will share all the resources with you after this call um, so that you can share it out to your audience. Awesome. So thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you all on Thursday. Um, if you liked this episode, please feel free to rate, subscribe, comment, share, all that good stuff. Um, we hope that you've been enjoying some of the stuff we've been sharing on social media. It's been a lot of fun to kind of share some of our humor in video form with you. So if you like that too, don't hesitate to give us a follow there as well. But thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you again on Thursday. This has been another episode of Let's Unpack That.